I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Galen, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Justin, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with 30 separate guests on different topics. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing from George Dimakopoulos, the co-director of the Orthodox Christian Studies Center, about the powerful elements within the Russian Orthodox Church that are justifying Putin's invasion of Ukraine by way of something called the Russian world teaching, and why a number of theologians, including Professor Dimakupolis, are speaking out against the Russian world teaching, with some even declaring it a heresy. Additionally, we'll be speaking with Tom Hartman, the legendary progressive radio host, about his new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother, which will take us into the world of Orwellian big tech surveillance happening around us today. But first, returning guest, investigative journalist Greg Pallast, joins us to discuss the rise of Vladimir Putin, which as it turns out, is a Frankenstein's monster-style tale involving Russian oligarchs and powerful political elements within the United States. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with investigative journalist Greg Pallast. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy having on, investigative journalist Greg Pallast, author of such great books as The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. How are you doing today? Uh, well, um, I'm doing okay. I don't know how the world is doing. Well, ain't that the truth? Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, you're known for writing about uh, election issues, but as yeah. of late, you've been writing about the situation 
with Ukraine, as many of us uh, are, and also the rise of Vladimir Putin. So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your insights into this subject. Well, those are not two different things. When we're talking about um, uh, Putin and elections, these are all related because I don't just cover elections in the United States. People know me for, uh, you know, busting what is politely called vote suppression techniques. Uh, uh, you know, vote suppression to define it is black people out of their votes. But um, we have this, you know, this is a worldwide issue since since we since the first time that there was ever a vote between Ugg and Thug in a cave, someone was cheating <laughs> the elections. So how do we get Vladimir Putin? This goes back to a stolen election. So this is my beat. Um, back in, let's go back to the 1990s. After the wall fell, uh, a uh, Boris Yeltsin became president, a notorious drunk. Uh, he'd had five heart attacks wasn't a very good candidate for re-election, was he? And in fact, uh, Gennady Zyuganov, uh, don't worry, you don't have to write these things down. You just go to gregpalace.com, read it. Um, but uh, Gennady Zyuganov uh, was the head of the reformed, rebranded, remarketed Communist Party of the Russian Federation. And he was almost certain to get elected president over, over the drunk Yeltsin. Plus, the economy was not only tanking, you have to understand, the U.S., as Putin pointed out in his February, uh, you know, crazy ass speech, the U.S. basically seized Russia economically. We, it was an economic conquest in which shock United, therapy. it was called shock therapy. And shock therapy was created by a guy named um, Larry Summers, Harvard professor who became uh, um, Bill Clinton's Treasury Se Deputy Treasury Secretary, the Treasury Secretary, um, Obama made him the uh, later economic star. Anyway, he was so he was uh, he had guided under U.S. pressure to turn Russia from a socialist state into a capitalist state overnight. That's the shock. And what they did was that they said, OK, well, we'll do something fair. We'll give all the workers, which is a very socialist concept. We'll give all the workers the stock in all their companies, nickel companies, the oil companies, whatever. You're a worker at Luke Oil. Well, now you own Luke Oil. You got the shares, except one thing. People were starving. And they couldn't eat shares. So they sold them to these billionaires under something called the Loan for Shares program, where Yeltsin gave his buddies money. They bought up people's shares for peanuts. Basically, we'll give you some potato chips so you, your kids won't starve. Give us your shares. And they took control of the economy. They literally purchased for nothing, for peanuts, 60% uh, of all state assets, including the oil companies and you know, the, the commodities companies, the whole ball of wax. Um, and a guy, Boris Berezovsky, said he and, and a couple of his buddies own more than 50% of the Russian economy. And now they're going to lose it because the communists are going to take back power and say, no, 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 give it back to us. So in panic, they said, well, what we have to do is, in effect, steal the, the election for, for Yeltsin, get him reelected. And so they but they knew that Yeltsin couldn't be reelected by himself. He would need a running mate that is a prime minister because they have a Yeltsin's president, they needed a prime minister. They needed someone who was like Pinochet of 
Chile. Now, for those too young to know who Pinochet was, and some people Frenchify the name to Pinochet, he's Pinochet, which, by the way, in uh, the reason my friends in Chile insist on calling him Pinochet is not, not only because it's the correct pronunciation of the Spanish, but uh, Pinochet is also colloquialism for small penis or pin ocho ochet like Pinocchio the liar. So Pinochet the liar with the small penis was a killer dictator in Chile. He overthrew the elected president, Salvador Allende, who was, interestingly, a elected Communist Party member. Um, and uh, was famous for killing thousands and thousands of dissidents. His favorite, uh, by the way, he had a kind of favorite thing of throwing um, leftists and dissidents out of helicopters. Uh, a reference, as my friend Tom Hartman pointed out, uh, last year in protests in Portland, the right wing, the, you know, the ultra-right neo-Nazis were marching around with T-shirts that said, free helicopter rides for liberals. They're referring to Pinochet, who threw left-wing uh, dissidents out of helicopters. What, is this, what does Pinochet have to do with Russia? The answer was is that they decided that the best running mate for Yeltsin, who would also protect them, that is the, the billionaires, the, the ultra-billionaires like Berezovsky, who owned the economy, was to find a Pinochet for Russia. And this was not a secret little deal. They had something called the Davos Pact because when they went to Davos, all the attention of the, of the world leaders, including the corporate leaders from America and Britain and Germany, um, they were all fawning all over Zyuganov, who was going to be elected president, the communist, but they didn't care. He was going to be in charge. So they came up with the Davos Pact to reelect Yeltsin. And then later, what they call the Succession Pact, secret pact among the uh, not too secret pact among the billionaires. They needed a Pinochet. So they literally took the Larry King, the uh, the Rachel Maddow, whatever you want to call it, of uh, Russia and had him fly to Chile and do a big national broadcast with General Pinochet, the dictator who is now had been deposed was now under arrest for murder in Chile, and yet they put him on Russian national TV to say, this is the model for Russia, the strong man who's going to take control and is going to use the military and his power to straighten things out and take, you know, and if you want to, and if you want to dissent from that, well, you get a free helicopter ride. So they literally went out and said, we need to find a Russian Pinochet. And one guy looked like Pinochet, acted like Pinochet. He was the judo champ of, of Petersburg. He was a minor official and unemployed, the unemployed ex-deputy um, deputy mayor of Petersburg, a really minor official, but he was tough as nails. He was sober as a deacon uh, to counter Yeltsin's drunken, uh, endless drunkenness and uh, a tough guy and a nationalist. And even though he'd been in the KGB and was a good communist, he was now a violent, violent anti-communist. So they, they promoted this guy, Putin, from Nowheresville to head of the KGB, which was renamed the FSB. And then from there, they made him uh, deputy prime minister, then prime minister. And that they were able to get Yeltsin reelected. And but as long as Yeltsin agreed that, in fact, he would then turn over the power, the presidency to Putin. And in 1999, 
Okay, so again, this is all about stealing the election for Putin. Now, for excuse me, for Yeltsin, and uh, by first of all bringing in a Putin that they would trust, but that the public would go for. But that still wasn't enough to get him elected. People were starving. I know I'm, I'm filibustering here, but I'll I'll give you a little extra time. But I, you got to tell the story. The average Russian life expectancy for a man, which you, which under the USSR. People lived longer than Americans because they had a, uh, an extraordinary healthcare system and good food. Once shock therapy and capitalism took over, people literally were starving to death. Literally. Number of calories of the average Russian fell by nearly half. Life expectancy fell from more than American life expectancy to 57 years. You have to understand what that means demographically. It means people were just dropping dead. No medical care, no food. No uh, social, you know, no social safety net. So you, the only way to, to get Yeltsin Putin ticket elected was through what they called administrative measures, or what we in America politely call vote suppression, meaning you steal the election. So they stole the election for Yeltsin. When I say they, not only the billionaires, but we had a lot of help. These billionaires had a lot of help from Bill Clinton. And from uh, from Bill Clinton and uh, Larry Summers and the whole then gang of consultants and experts that we sent over PR people, manipulators, propaganda experts to help Yeltsin get reelected. So we basically basically Clinton between Clinton and the billionaires, they stole the election for Yeltsin, which meant that they stole the election for Putin. So when we complain about Putin and by the way. I have no love for Putin. He's a vicious, murderous dictator, and hopefully we'll pinochet him, that is, arrest him for the murders he's committed. But let's not forget, it was the United States that put him in power. It was America, and most important, we couldn't have done it alone. The main thing was that fifth column in Russia, those billionaires, Borisovsky, Hororovsky, and all these guys who ultimately um, put Putin in power. And of course, they paid the price. Uh, Berezovsky, the main guy who picked out Putin and found Putin as the Russian Pinochet, uh, was, you know, found dead in his bathroom. Hodorovsky, Putin put in prison and took back his oil company, etc. So you know, there was a kind of comeuppance for the billionaires. So that's how he ended up with Putin, because we and the billionaires put him there and we put him there to act like a monster militarist killer. But we, you know, like anytime we create monsters in our Frankenstein factory, well, you know, the story of Frankenstein turns around on its creator. You know, I did a story when you talk about it. Well, I talk about elections a lot. But one of my biggest stories was my discovery with BBC, when I was at BBC television as an investigative reporter there, is that, you know, the U.S. was the big money behind Osama bin Laden and the big promoter of him. And when you create Frankensteins, Frankenstein turns around and goes after its creator. So we have this blowback problem in the US when we create dictators in other nations, when we create monsters with the manipulative idea of overthrowing governments we don't like, we get the government that wants to overthrow us. Really quickly, I want to stick on that point of, of how the US and, and the Clinton administration plays into in essence, the, the inadvertent rise of Vladimir Putin, because I think that 
a lot of people are focused on, oh, did we make missteps with NATO expansion? But there's this whole other issue you can talk about of just how Putin got to power. And I think that really needs to be examined more. Well, indeed. Um, First of all, you know, let, I have said, if you go to gregpalace.com and read my articles, I've said that NATO expansion was diplomatic malfeasance. But let's not get carried away with Putin's bullshit that he has a cause, you know, a cause for war against Ukraine because of NATO. Because let's not forget, NATO didn't expand into Ukraine. Ukraine um, sought NATO membership 14 years ago. And it was laughed out of the room. It's not even possible under NATO charter to join NATO if you are in conflict with a bordering nation. It's right in the charter. It was laughed out of the room. No one's going to accept Ukraine into NATO. So this is all BS. This is bullshit completely from from Putin. Let's not buy his line. And I think a lot of my fellow progressives on the left say, oh, we expanded NATO. We're so bad. Spank us. Please kill Ukrainians. It's all our fault. Bullshit. Let's cut the crap. NATO has nothing to do with it. In fact, NATO has just proved how useless it was. In fact, I'll go back. How about this? We should have let Ukraine into NATO. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, tanks wouldn't be there now. Furthermore, we pushed Clinton. You want to talk about blaming Clinton for what's going on now? Clinton forced Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons and literally to send their warheads to Russia. So Russia has Ukraine's warheads. You know, it's just like, um, and obviously, you know, I'm not a big fan of nuclear weapons, but if Ukraine still had those weapons, they wouldn't have tanks in Kharkiv right now. And by the way, I want to mention that my uh, a palace investigative fund um, reporter, Nick Perpolitsa, is in Kharkiv right now. And I don't know how he's going to get out or get out alive. Uh, so, you know, yeah, so the U.S. has plenty to blame here, but that let's be very careful just because Bill Clinton is a, and, uh, is a crime wave with Larry Summers and um, basically denuded Ukraine, brutalized Russia, took their money and their resources, and a lot of it ended up as kickbacks into the Clinton Foundation. And I'm, that's another story. Uh, but that doesn't let Putin off the hook. We've got a real serious monster here. And... I want to add one thing that's very important. Just as we brutalized Russia, what's happening now, we put Putin, we put Putin in. He wouldn't have been there without U.S. support. It's that simple. And we were we knew what we were getting. It wasn't this wasn't a surprise. We picked him out as the as this killer Pinochet of Russia. But right now, it's not just Ukraine which is suffering. Russia's suffering. I was just speaking to the journalist uh, Larissa uh, and well, OK, go oh, to my site. Larissa to get the right front. <laughs> yes, okay, exactly. She's great. Uh, <laughs> um, and. As she point out, it's Russians who are also getting brutalized here when today uh, Bolshoi uh, ballet dancer denounced the war and had to quit. She'll be lucky if her if her entire family doesn't end up in a gulag, if not worse, Um They've arrested by last count 18,000 people in Russia for protesting the war. They stopped people on the street to look at their cell phones to see, um, you know, what type of, uh, if they've been surfing the internet and going on uh, sites like gregpalace.com. 
And so we end up being brutalized. Uh, the Russians end up being brutalized. And of course, we end up losing our freedoms too. I'm not, you know, look, yes, RT in America was kind of kind of Russian propaganda arm, but now they're off the air. They've been banned from the airwaves of Europe and Britain. I don't like that. I think that uh, we can win. You know what? I think we can win the debate. I don't need to shut down my opponents. Real quick, because I, I know we're limited on time. Uh, you've we're also wrote about Venezuela yes. uh, in relation to all of this. Uh, how is Venezuela a factor here? Big time. We've destroyed Venezuela. People keep forgetting that one of the, the number one issue, the, one of the reasons why oil is so high is that we have embargoed oil from the number one, from the nation with the number one uh, reserves of oil in the world, Venezuela. You go to the OPEC site and you'll see, it's not Saudi Arabia, which has most oil in the world. It is Venezuela by far, by far. Venezuela produces virtually no oil at all right now, sitting on the biggest reserves in the world. They used to produce 3.2 million barrels a day. Now it's down to point two. We have sabotaged them. We have an embargo on Venezuela. Why did their oil industry collapse? Because we won't allow them to sell their oil. The U.S. was their main, it was almost their entire market. We won't buy their oil. When we have bought it, we've literally taken their money and stuck it into the U.S. Treasury. Um, there's no way to fix their oil system because they can't get spare parts. They're basically under a siege, under... Um, you know, a, literally an act of war military embargo, which has destroyed the economy. They can't get medicine. They can't get food. They can't fix their industries. Massive unemployment, misery. And now we're paying for it at the pump. I know that that's not like the misery there. But I can tell you this right now. You unleash the oil from Venezuela. Two million barrels of oil a day and Putin is finished. Finished. Because he survives and his military operation survives on oil being at $100 a barrel, approximately up or down. 100 bucks a barrel means a billion dollars a day to Russia, which until the war was the number one exporter of oil in the world, not Saudi Arabia, no one else. The, uh, and it, so they were the number one exporter they make their money from gas and oil. 43% of the Russian budget is from oil and gas royalties and, and sales. 43%. That's their entire economy. And if you brought in Venezuelan oil, Putin would be on his knees. But instead, we're so concerned with brutalizing the progressive governments of Venezuela. Now, I know I was the correspondent for BBC covering Venezuela and the coup d'etat that the US engineered against Hugo Chavez. And now his successor Maduro, who by the way, I'm, I, by the way, I know Maduro personally, but I don't think he's a, he's a good president. I think he's not up to the job. He can turn thuggish because he doesn't know what to do. He's over his head, but that's my opinion. That's, but the, the opinion of Venezuelans is they might not like him the way they love Chavez, and they don't. He's not very popular, Maduro, but he was elected. And at some point, America has to decide we like democracy. He was elected, not the guy that the U.S. has recognized as the president of Venezuela, a guy named Juan Guaido, this white guy who's lived in Washington, D.C., never even ran for president. Well, that's probably, you know... Putin right now complaining, I'm, but I'm not going to pick up the phone. Um, 
Well, it, it, it's really interesting, too, because I think with Venezuela and I've also talked with um, people about Cuba in relation to all of this, you know, in, in a way, these embargoes that we have against these uh, countries uh, within our south of the border backyard, uh, you know, the embargoes and the sanctions actually end up pushing them uh, sort of towards, you know, supporting Russia at times. Well, they have to. I mean, uh, the only support that Venezuela got was from Russia, but Russia's useless to them now. So the good thing about uh, that's happening right now is is that the State Department has actually sent down this past weekend. The State Department sent down a delegation to meet with Maduro saying, OK, <laughs> they obviously figured out that it's time to, to take their foot off <coughs> the oil, the this amazing source of oil that we would have to bring down, you know, because. You know, let's face it, Biden, if oil, if gas is above five bucks a gallon in in uh, November, I don't think that there'll be a Democrat left in Congress and probably shouldn't be. But, you know, if they and if they do it to themselves, if they don't unleash that oil from Venezuela and that's one of the problems. Now, of course, Maduro understands Venezuela understands that it's not going to get any more help from Russia. It ain't going to happen. They're not going to get anything from there. China has been buying oil from Venezuela, but China is not willing to uh, to bug the U.S. by sending them enough equipment to rebuild their oil industry. So basically, Venezuela has to cut a deal with the U.S. And the U.S. has to cut a deal with Venezuela unless we've decided that we're happy with five dollar a gallon gas and that we're happy with Putin raking in the money. So at the moment, what's what's our financial attack on Russia. Oh, these um, going after the oligarchs and saying that they won't be able to get tickets to Hamilton. I don't think they that Putin gives a damn. Well, that that's that's the problem, right? I mean, you know, these oligarchs, I think, know how to shift their money. Well, yeah. And not only do the oligarchs know how to shift their money, Putin doesn't care about them anymore. Like I say, they actually don't have as much influence as they used to. Berezovsky put him in power. He's dead under questionable circumstance. Uh, Hodorovsky was the most, was the number one, uh, was the richest of all the oligarchs. He was put in prison and stripped of most of his cash. Now he was sent off to Switzerland. Um, you know, so most of these guys, like, uh, you know, like they took away, um, they're forcing uh uh, Abramovich in England, who's moved to England to sell the, the Chelsea football club. Really? Putin gives a crap about that? I don't think so. What he gives a crap about is that every day he's making a billion dollars on the high oil market. As long as his tanks roll, the oil market's through the ceiling. And so the in gas other words, this is ultimately about oil. It always is about oil. In the case of, um, so it's not only the control of the oil flow. And by the way, the Russians, for example, we talk about it, it's the oil. The Russians just put the kibosh on the agreement between Iran and the U.S. The Iranian delegation uh, to the talks to return to restore the old agreement with Iran to, uh, you know, no nukes for ending sanctions. Um the Russians put a knife in that saying that if Iran signs the deal with the U.S. and Iran, the Iranian government 
put out a tweet saying we've now reached a basic agreement with the U.S. We're, we're finishing the details, which we should be able to do in one week. So people in America have to understand we are one week from signing a new deal with Iran. Russia put a knife in that and said, we will not sign it because they're signat- they have to be a signatory to the agreement. They said, we're not going to sign it unless you say that any agreements with Iran can't affect uh, trade with the, with the, the Soviet, uh, not, excuse me, with Russia. And why did the Russians do that? Why the Russians want to kill the deal between the U.S. and Iran? Because as soon as the sanctions are lifted, there will be an extra million barrels of oil a day into the market. That's going to cut the price of oil. That's going to cut Putin's power. So imagine a million barrels a day from Iran, two million barrels a day from Venezuela. Well, what does Putin have then? He's doing nothing but holding his his empty hockey sack. So in closing, what do you hope that my listeners uh, get out of this conversation? Just maybe summing it up, what are the most important points for you? One, stop making excuses for a monster like Putin. He's the Pinochet of Russia. That's why he was chosen by billionaires in the U.S. Don't make excuses for this guy. It has nothing to do with NATO. That's all bullshit. So number one, no excuses for this monster. Number two, if the U.S., has got to stop being a monster itself. That doesn't excuse Putin at all. We've got to stop monstering and killing people in Venezuela. We have to make, we have to restore our friendship with our South American, what is really an ally. That's key. And we have to support the Ukrainian people and in whatever way we can. And you, the way what you, the important point about talking about Putin as and revealing him as the Pinochet of Russia, which most people in Russia call him the Pinochet of Russia. They're proudly, proudly. Is that we Pinochet is a was a monster now dead, a killer. And so is Putin. And we have to return to something we learned the hard way in 1930s. Fight fascists, fight fascists. You don't can't make a deal with fascists. You can only fight them. Fight, fight fascists, and I would say also don't play a role in creating them. <laughs> yes, you know, I keep saying if you don't want to have a Frankenstein, close down the Frankenstein factory. Well, thank you again, Greg Palast, for coming on Parallax Views. You got it. Next up, legendary progressive radio host Tom Hartman joins us to discuss the latest entry in his Hidden History book series. It's The Hidden History of Big Brother, and we're going to be talking about Orwellian surveillance, Big Tech, Cambridge Analytica, The Patriot Act, and much, much more. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Tom Hartman, returning to the program to discuss his book, The Hidden History of Big Brother. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy having on, progressive radio host and New York Times bestselling author, Tom Hartman, author of the new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. How are you doing today? Hey, JG. It's great to be with you again. Thank you for inviting me. So, Tom, I, I know you've had a, a whole series of books on uh, the hidden history of, of various aspects of uh, America, and I'm really interested in this one, The Hidden History 
of Big Brother in America. And I guess where I wanted to start was maybe delving into uh, the history of, you know, Big Brother before uh, Big Tech, because I know in the book you mentioned one of my heroes, uh, the great journalist Anthony Summers and Robin Swan, who wrote a really pivotal book on J. Edgar Hoover. And I, I was unaware that you had uh, spent time with him talking about uh, Hoover and his career. So maybe you could start there with that sort of prehistory of Big Brother. Well, there's a, a super prehistory, and that is that there were two times in American history where we had uh, actual police states, where, where America was, uh, you know, in many ways resembled uh, George Orwell's 1984 description. Uh, he's the one who popularized the phrase Big Brother. Um, the first was the situation of the Quakers in the Northeast, uh, or anybody who was not, you know, a Puritan. Um, the right-wing churches had basically taken over Massachusetts and half of New Hampshire, and I start the book with the story, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, the, 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 uh, the Day the Women Came, or The Women Who Came from Dover, uh, you know, about these three women who were um, stripped naked to the waist, tied to the back of a horse cart in the middle of winter and dragged through three feet of snow and whipped until bloody in city after city because they refused to go to church. Um, so <laughs> we were there, there. And of course, the American South was a, was a police state from virtually from its inception. You can't maintain slavery without a police state. But it even ceased to be a democracy for white people by the 1840s. Um, about a thousand oligarchic families in the South had risen up and taken over the South. And, uh, you know, we're running the show. Every every elected politician was from one of those families. Ballot boxes were stuffed. There was no democracy. So the Civil War was really a war between a democracy in the North and a, uh, a fascist uh, a police state in the South. Uh, and, and then in more modern times, with J. Edgar Hoover and, and my reference to Anthony Summers and, and, and Robin uh, Swan's book, um, uh, Private and Confidential, as I recall. Um, it, you know, Hoover was a guy, you know, he came to the pinnacle of American power in the 1930s when he when he became the first head of the FBI and um, and ruled with an iron fist until he died in the 70s. And during that time, he, here was a guy who was a gay man uh, with a live-in lover, Clyde Tolson. Um, running an organization that did not hire gay people in, uh, in, in an America where in many states during that time you could go to prison for being gay. And um, he compiled massive amounts of information as far as anybody can tell. It looks like most of it was destroyed when he died, uh, but massive amount of information on American politicians and used that to accomplish what he wanted. And one of the things that he wanted to accomplish was avoiding his secret of being gay coming out. Um, Santo Traficante had invited him and Tolson down to Hialeah, uh, the racetrack that he owned. Santo Traficante was probably America's number one mob boss. And he would invite them down to uh, Hialeah, down to Miami to gamble and, and, you know, give them young boys and cash and drinks, and, uh, him and Clyde. And he had been blackmailing uh, Hoover with this for years uh, to the point that Hoover was denying right up until 1961 was denying that there was any such thing as organized crime in the United States. And, and, and that's why we went from virtually no, I think there were 15 prosecutions of organized crime in 1960, um, the last year of the uh, Eisenhower-Nixon administration to 1961 when Bobby came in as attorney general and said, screw that, we're gonna go after organized crime. And there were over 700 prosecutions of our organized crime in 1961, which was kind of the beginning of the end of Hoover in a way, although he, he held power until the day he died. 
And I was going to say, it's telling because I hadn't thought of it before, but I believe you mentioned it um, when you uh, talk about Official and Confidential, that Anthony Summers book. It's telling that books like that only came out after Hoover's death. And it, it sort of is a, a striking testimonial to the power of surveillance. It is. Yeah, and it wasn't that you know Summers wasn't a brilliant journalist and couldn't find this information. It was it, it could not be found. I mean, you know, no, none of, and that was one of many books about Hoover that came out after he died. So yeah. So bringing us up to today, there is a lot of talk about uh, big tech and uh, things like uh, Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act, and it's interesting. I think there's both elements of the left and the right that are talking about uh, big tech. I mean, I think there was just a, a book by uh, Josh Hawley, uh, you know, going after big tech. How should we on the sort of progressive end or the left-wing end of things be talking about big tech? And, and what are the overlaps and differences uh, between the left and right critiques of big tech? In terms of the differences between the two critiques, um, you know, they, they tend to, to boil down to whether or not a particular um, uh, uh, social media site has banned Donald Trump recently or not. But um, the, what we have to recognize is what has happened in the United States in the last 25 years um, with regard to the Internet. I mean, the Internet became a thick thing in the 80s in a, in a, in a consequential way. Um, the, the development of hypertext market, hypertext mark, markup language HTML in uh, either the late 80s or the early 90s. But we had always had in the United States this idea that was founded on on British common law that went back to the uh, 11th century to, uh, to you know to the to the time of the Magna Carta. Um, this this castle doctrine, doctrine notion that you know a, a, a man's home is his castle is the old phrase you know from hundreds of years ago, and but there's a flip side to that and that is that you are responsible for what happens in your castle, and so if uh, if UJG were to uh, tonight hang a big sign out in front of your house uh, out by the street that says hey big party at midnight come on in front door will be open everybody welcome. And, uh, you know, around two o'clock in the morning, you discover that, you know, there's somebody uh, in the back room shooting heroin and and somebody in the kitchen dealing drugs to teenagers and somebody showing child porn in, in another bedroom and maybe raping somebody in the backyard um, and the police show up. They would put you in jail, too, because this was happening in your home. You knew about it. You didn't stop it. You didn't call the authorities. So there has always been, I mean, literally back to, to the, the year 1000, there has been this notion in British common law and American law that what happens in your home or your place of business, same thing. If you, if you uh, say you owned a, a retail store and you just opened the door and said, come on in, you can do whatever you want. If you allow crimes to be committed on your premises, you are responsible. Well, in 1996, with the Telecommunications Act of 96, they uh, they included a provision called Section 203 that says that's still true about your home and it's still true about your business. But if you create a building on the Internet, you can invite child pornographers in. You can invite uh, murder for hire people in. You can invite terrorists in. You can invite drug dealers in. And there's absolutely no possibility you can go to jail. You have no liability or responsibility for that. And the consequence of that was an explosion in social media, Mark Zuckerberg becoming one of the richest men in the world, and this um, t 
terrible distortion of American politics that we've seen over the years as a consequence of it. And, uh, you know, as you point out, Josh Hawley wrote a book basically making that same argument that I just made and saying that that Section 230, you know, it, it gave a nice kickstart to the Internet and created, you know, a handful of billionaires. But uh, in retrospect, it wasn't such a brilliant idea. The other another dimension of this that, that uh, you know, people very often miss is that um, up until uh, about three, four years ago, in the United States, as in every other country, every other developed country in the world, if you want to listen in on somebody's phone calls, you have to get a warrant from a judge. If you're a police department, if you're a, you know the guy down the street, or if you're the phone company, you have to have a warrant from a judge to listen in on a phone call. It's called Title II of the Telecommunications Act of 1930, whatever it was, or 1920, is the 20s and 30s uh, back then, you know, when phones started getting very wide, widespread. That was the law with regard to the Internet, too, up until recently. If your Internet service provider, the company that brings the Internet into your home, wants to listen in on what you're doing or watch what you're doing on the Internet, they had to have a warrant, just like they have to have a warrant if they want to listen into your phone calls. And uh, Donald Trump hired a Verizon lawyer by the name of Ajit Pai, put him in charge of the FCC. Uh, Ajit Pai uh, conducted a, a phony baloney song and dance public hearings where over a million bot messages came in saying, yeah, destroy net neutrality. And he did. He ended net privacy, privacy on the Internet. So now in the United States exclusively, you can't, no other country allows this. But in the United States, the company, the company bringing the Internet into your home can see everything you're doing, every single keystroke, every word you type, every email that comes in, every email that goes out, every video you watch, everything you say to anybody, how quickly you scroll through a page, what pictures you slow down at, which ads you look, you linger on, and they 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 compile they can come record this information, compile this information, and sell this information um, with absolute impunity. And that's another one of these mind-boggling changes that have happened in the last few decades as a consequence of that. Um, so, you know, there, there are a few things that we need to be doing something about, shall we say. So, you know, growing up during the Bush era, which I, I think was a, a very scary big brotherish time as well, uh, people would always have this refrain when you uh, made criticisms of things like the Patriot Act. Uh, they would say, well, if you have nothing to hide, then you don't have anything to worry about. Uh, you know, I don't even know that that merits a, a serious response, but I think we have to respond to that. So how, how well, do you respond when people bring that up? Yeah. When, if somebody says, I have nothing to hide, I say, great, you're going to let me set up a camera in your bedroom. I'll put one in your bathroom too. It usually stops them. You know, I mean, it's just a stupid thing to say. I have nothing to hide. Everybody has the ability to be embarrassed by, by their private moments. Everybody. There's nobody who doesn't have something to hide. It's a stupid thing to say. Not, not from you. I've, I've heard it from, you know, I, I, I get your point. So there's just a few more things I wanted to cover. Uh, so you you also get into, um, you know, the, the Trump campaign and some of the strategies they used for their campaign. And it's interesting. I, I will admit uh, I'm one of these people that was guilty of saying, you know, putting a lot of blame uh, for the for the Clinton campaign on Robbie Mook. But as you point out, uh, well, as you point out, though, there's also this element of Cambridge Analytica and Trump's strategies in his campaign. Could you tell my listeners about that? Yeah, Trump hired in 2016 this British company, Cambridge Analytica, who had scraped 
they claimed 200 million people's data off Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg came out later and said it was only 87 million people. Um, and uh, Cambridge Analytica put together literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ads for Trump that had basically two themes. There, these were voter suppression ads was the goal of these things. And one set was directed toward black people and it was in the United States. And it was um, it, mostly use of the uh, Hillary Clinton super predator clip um, and, and, you know, designed highly deceptively, but also targeted to, to people. So because they had all this granular information. Now, nobody knows what exactly was in all these ads um, because they appeared on Facebook once and were gone, you know, within hours. I mean, Facebook presumably knows, but nobody else knows. Um, but we can guess at how granular they might have been. Like, you know, if you have a cat named Fluffy, there would be a cat named Fluffy in the ad, that kind of thing. Or if you smoke a particular brand of cigarettes, you'd have somebody smoking that brand of cigarettes. Or if you own a, a motorcycle, you'd see a motorcycle or, you know, just highly personal. Or there may be things that they learned from their Facebook profile. You're afraid of spiders. OK, we're going to show a picture of Hillary Clinton with a spider. I mean, again, we don't know exactly what they did. What we do know is that they were highly effective. The first message was, you know, Hillary Clinton is not your friend of black people. The second message was to people who are, um, uh, people who are called, you know, weak Democrats. That is to say that they don't always vote Democratic and they don't always vote, and which is a large part of the population. And their message to them was both parties are the same. They're, you know, they're both corrupt. They're all the same. There's no reason, you know, to even bother voting. And that, that also was the principal message that Russian trolls were promoting in 2016 and continue to to this day. So uh, on, uh, there was one day, the day, the, the last debate that Trump had with uh, Hillary Clinton, they ran over 150,000 different variations on that ad, pushing it out into millions and millions of, of families. Um, in days prior to that, they were running as many as 50,000 different variations of these ads on any given day. So and it was massive. And what they found was that it was very, very effective at suppressing the vote. The, the vote just in Milwaukee dropped by over 50,000 people. And this is a, you know, a city that's largely Democratic, 80 uh, percent black. And, you know, that 50,000 vote drop is what allowed Donald Trump to win Wisconsin by 27,000 votes. So, yeah, that's what happened. I had mentioned earlier as well, uh, the Patriot Act and, and its passage uh, after 9-11. And I'm curious, uh, how does the Patriot Act fit into uh, the hidden history of Big Brother? The Patriot Act was a, a, a cobbling together of a, a dozen or more different pieces of legislation that various right-wingers had tried to push through Congress in the previous couple of decades. And had always the pushback had always been, but wait a minute, we have civil liberties in the United States. <laughs> we have privacy. You can't do this. And, uh, you know, but in the hysteria following 9-11, they were able to do it. And, and, and I think that uh, the revelations that Edward Snowden, uh, you know, uh, shared with us all really demonstrate uh, to the world, um, or particularly to Americans, how the Patriot Act was used and abused. And, uh, and you know, we're not really sure how, how extensive that use and abuse continues to be. But uh, the Patriot Act is something that we need to take a serious look at. So I feel like some listeners are, are hearing this and saying, my God, it, it sounds like we're barreling towards dystopia. What can we possibly do? And I don't want to give listeners a sense that all is hopeless. So 
Uh, what are some actions that are being taken now politically or, or just even personally uh, to push back on Big Brother? Right. Well, we haven't yet seen in a, in a big way or in a public way government using this mind-boggling amount of information or even corporations on a widespread basis to punish people um, like we see in authoritarian regimes. What we are seeing is the acquisition of enough information that they could do that should we end up with a president who doesn't believe in a free press and uh, you know who thinks that his political opponents should be put in jail. Um, which is a president we had for four years, and he made it very clear if he got reelected that we would be going down this authoritarian road. So number one, while we still can, I think we need to get our, our privacy rights more cemented in law, number one. Number two, we need to reverse uh, Donald Trump and Ajit Pai's destruction of internet privacy um, by going back to Title II of the Telecommunications Act and protecting our internet behavior like our phone behavior. Number three, we need to rewrite Section 230 of the uh, of the uh, Telecommunications Act of '96. We need to we need to revisit the Patriot Act. We need to be breaking up some of these large monopolies. Uh, you know, this is has been law since 1891, but nobody's enforced it since Reagan stopped enforcing our our antitrust laws in 1983. And, and we need to go back to enforcing our antitrust laws. So that's a, a short list. I mean, there's a few others in the book, but I think those are the high points, uh, JG. Do you see um, potential for, you know, pushing through legislation that may uh, turn things around uh, going forward? I think there's a growing bipartisan consensus that Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act needs to be fixed. Um, the net neutrality thing was really hot for a while, but it's died down for a couple of years. Um, the Internet service providers, while they are gathering and selling this information, they're doing it, or at least those who are doing it are doing it in a way that's sufficiently inconspicuous that it's not in our face all the time. Um, uh, you know, we may notice that, you know, we, we search for, for some product on, on the internet once and suddenly that product shows up in every ad we visit for the next month. But, you know, I don't think everybody's put two and two together in that regard, but it needs to be done. We need to, we need to revisit that conversation. With regard to the Patriot Act and, and uh, the Department of Homeland Security and all that, um, I, I, I don't think that there is a strong consensus right now, particularly as we're looking at the possibility of international warfare um, to do anything that might be perceived as weakening our government. Although, frankly, I believe it would strengthen our government to strengthen our civil protections and our civil liberties. Why do you think it would strengthen us? Um, just in case someone is asking that uh, that's listening. Because the, you know, it's like the people in Ukraine who are fighting right now are fighting not just for their homeland, Ukraine, but they're fighting for their democracy. Democracies are founded on values. And one of the principal values of democracy is the respect of the of privacy rights, the, the respect of the integrity of the individual person. You know, what the Fourth Amendment says, the right to be secure in your in your in your person, your home, your effects, and your papers. And um, the extent to which we can strengthen those rights is the extent to which we strengthen the moral core of America, which frankly, at the end of the day, is pretty much all we have. I mean, any country is only as strong as, as, its, as its shared belief in its own goodness, essentially. It's what happened to the Soviet Union when it started falling apart in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, in a big way, was that uh, the, this ideal of, you know, to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability, um, you know, started falling apart. 
And, and, you know, and, and it was the corruption in the Soviet Union that, that really took it down. Everybody saw that there were oligarchs, you know, there were very wealthy people. They just happened to be at the top of the party. And, and so <clears throat> the extent to which corruption happens is the extent to which democracies and, and other countries as well uh, lose their moral force and thus become weakened. Uh, two more things I wanted to touch on briefly. First, uh, I love the title of the book uh, because you invoke um, George Orwell and and that term from 1984, Big Brother. And I think it's interesting. I feel as if um, a lot of right-wing elements in America have tried to claim Orwell for themselves. Uh, they use the term Big Brother a lot. The government's coming to get you. Uh, but people forget uh, Orwell was sort of a man of the left. And I think that the right has sort of taken up this idea that they're now the defenders of free speech and they are going after the people who are uh, doing cancel culture or, or whatnot. But I, I think it's the left uh, that really inherits the legacy of Orwell and also, uh, you know, the legacy of fighting for free speech. Could you talk to that a little bit? Well, people on the right are complaining that they can't use the N-word in public and they can't make, you know, anti-gay and anti-trans slurs without being hassled and and uh, they can't, you know, promote homophobia and xenophobia without uh, being called out on it. I don't see that as a loss of free speech. I see that as social opprobrium. Uh, you know, that is that is uh, society recoiling from hate speech, essentially. They can call that free speech all they want, and and nobody's putting them in jail, by the way, for doing for saying these kinds of things. Um, but uh, I think you're right. I, I, the left, I mean, literally going back to the founding of our republic, the left has always been who defended free speech. In 1780, in 1798, um, when John Adams got seriously pissed off at the newspapers that, that were calling him out. Um, the ben, ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, wrote an editorial in the Aurora a newspaper out of uh, uh, out of Boston that uh, said that Adams was old, toothless, querulous and balding. And that was what pushed Adams over the top. He passed the Alien Sedition Act, which made it a crime to criticize the president. And then he put 17 newspaper publishers in prison and his lefty vice president, Thomas Jefferson, was so infuriated by that, that he didn't, he never again spoke to John Adams in person throughout their lives. Never again. Never again came back to the White House, uh, wouldn't have anything to do with John Adams for the last two years of Adams's presidency. And, uh, you know, so this is a long, this, this goes back a long, long way. But there have always been forces in the United States that want to clamp down on free speech, that want to impose essentially neo-fascism on us, we still have them today, and they have almost always been uh, united on, on the hard right end of the political spectrum. And, and I would just add to that. I mean, it's the right today that is trying to uh, ban books from being read in schools yes. or going after uh, journalists like Emily Wilder and, and getting her kicked out of uh, AP for being part of a, a, a progressive uh, Jewish student group. I mean, yeah. the right actually uh, seems to have a projection problem. I think you're right. And uh, the, the last point I wanted to make, um, when we talk about Big Brother, people think about, oh, big government's coming to get us. I, I think that's uh, how the right has sort of been able to frame Big Brother in our society. But I, I think uh, we should also be looking at the corporate end of things. I was wondering if you could comment on that in closing. Well, the up until this point, most 
of the corporate data gathering, which has been huge and extensive, and I go into it in some detail in the book, uh, most of the corporate data, data gathering that's been going on has been for the purposes of making money, uh, for enhancing profits, and it, which is what you would expect. I mean, businesses are businesses. They're there to make profits. Um, the problem is uh, exists on a couple of levels. One is that um, at certain levels of scale, uh, monopoly uh, you know, prevents competition uh, substantially. And, and this is no less true in the internet space than it is in, you know, gas stations or anything else. Um, you know, we've, we've got a serious monopoly problem here. And then the second is that they're gathering information that could be used against us in ways that, you know, and, and I, I would argue in some ways is being used against us in ways that we don't realize. Um, you know, if you call a company, the amount of time that you are sitting on hold may well be a function of one of these data companies telling that company whether you're a potentially good customer or a bad customer. If you get followed around in a store, it may have to do with the, the store using facial recognition. One of our largest drug chains did this for eight years before they got outed for it, using facial recognition software you know, connected to one of these backend databases that have thousands of data points on each one of us to decide whether you're somebody that they should go help right away, somebody they should ignore, or somebody they should follow around the store or try to discourage from buying products or not allow to return products. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it is impacting us. It's just doing it. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's doing it in all these small ways. And that one big shocking example, uh, you know, outside of Snowden's revelations really hasn't come along yet. But I'm I'm not holding my breath. I you know I, I fully expect that um, we're going to see more and more evidence of abuses, uh, uh, you know, really offensive abuses. Well, I want to thank you again, Tom Hartman, for coming on Parallaxes. Please let my listeners know uh, how they can keep up with your work, and uh, if there's anything you want them to get out of this conversation, what would the one thing you want them to really take in and understand be? Well, the number one thing that I would say is you need to inform yourself about the ways that you're being spied on, because there are ways to minimize it. And that may work to your benefit long term, not to not to allow quite so much spying on yourself. And I lay those out in the book and and, and I'm not the only one. I mean, there's other people writing about this as well. Um, in terms of finding my work, HartmanReport.com is the best website. I do a daily rant there five days a week, no advertising. You can subscribe for free. And, uh, and then we do a news summary and a book uh, excerpt every uh, Saturday and Sunday. So HartmanReport.com. Thank you again, Tom Hartman, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks, JG. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Hartman. Be sure to check out his new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother. And now we move on to the third and final segment of this episode, as Professor George Dimakupoulos joins us to discuss the Orthodox Christian perspective on Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There are those using the Russian world teaching who support the invasion, and yet others denounce Putin's invasion and the Russian world teaching as heretical to the faith. We'll discuss all that and more in the conversation to follow. And with that being said, let's get right to it with George Dimakupoulos.
Welcome to Parallax Views, George Dimakopoulos, uh, co-director of the Orthodox Christian Studies Center. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And I, I wanted to have you on the program to discuss uh, this declaration on uh, what's known as the Russian world teaching. And this seems very relevant right now uh, in light of what is happening um, in Ukraine. Uh, but first, uh, could, could you, maybe for my listeners, because we have a broad range of listeners here from all kinds of different faiths and uh, also even, even secular listeners, uh, could you maybe discuss um, the Orthodox faith and what is happening with it now in regards to this uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia? Sure. Well, uh, Orthodox Christianity is ancient. Um, it it stretches, you know, it stretches all the way into antiquity. It um, it is the dominant expression of Christianity uh, in in the Middle East, uh, in the Balkans, in Eastern Europe, in Russia. Um, uh, historically, it's the dominant expression of Christianity in Africa. That's not necessarily the case anymore, but um, it was for a long time. Uh, it's um, it, it's almost certainly the second largest Christian tradition in the world, uh, only behind Rome, Rome, Roman Catholicism. Uh, the organization of the church, however, um, again, following ancient models, is unlike Roman Catholicism, which is centered, obviously, under the Pope in Rome. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy has this notion of autocephalous churches, which means, uh, it's a fancy word, that simply means self-governing. In the ancient medieval world, those self-governing churches, uh, the boundaries really didn't have anything to do with ethnicity or language or nation. There were no nations in the ancient world. That's a modern concept. Um, but in the modern world, they have increasingly, those jurisdictions have increasingly begun to reflect uh, national boundaries. Depending on how one counts, it's a little bit disputed. There are either 14, 15, or 16 autocephalous churches in the Orthodox world. The largest and wealthiest is the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, it's certainly not the oldest, um, nor global, uh, but it is uh, because of, um, simply because of demographics and because of resources that flow from the Russian government. It's in, in many ways the largest. Uh, the Russian church is one of those churches uh, that is larger than its current national borders. So it includes um, the majority of Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. Uh, it includes um, some Christians in um, Estonia, in Latvia, in Lithuania, in Finland, um, etc. Even though some of those churches now have, sorry, some of those nations now have their own autocephalous churches as well, but you kind of have this overlap of jurisdictions. So um, one, one of the dimensions of the current conflict is uh, the desire, um, which is runs at least 100 years, if not longer, the desire of, you, of Christians in Ukraine to have their own independent church free of uh, Russian control. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Um, 
I, I can go into that if you'd like, but sim simply to say that you do have these overlapping jurisdictions. You have this independent church in Ukraine. Um, you have a Russian church in Ukraine. The other thing that's important to note, Ukraine is almost certainly the most religiously diverse nation in Europe. Very few people appreciate this. You have Roman Catholics in Ukraine. You have Eastern Rite Catholics in Ukraine. You have these two different jurisdictions of the Orthodox in Ukraine. You have a large Jewish population. You have a large Muslim population. And you also have a good number of Protestants in Ukraine. Um, religious um, activity, right? Uh, religious fervor, the number of people who actually attend church on, on a given Sunday or a certain number of Sundays in a month is much higher in Ukraine than it actually is in Russia. Church attendance in Russia is maybe five or six percent, um, where it's uh, considerably higher than that in, in, in Ukraine. So those that just gives you um, some uh, sense of the of the kind of global picture and, and where the Ukraine and Russia fit into that. Now, you said you would want to get into that more, um, these issues of jurisdictions and Ukraine. What more can you add to that? Yeah, well, um, all right. So uh, one of the interesting dimensions here is uh, of the Orthodox in Ukraine, probably 90% of them um, jurisdictionally belong to what is known as the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, 90%, okay? That is divided into 53 jurisdictions, 53 um, dioceses, led, each led by a bishop. Since the war has started, um, 18 of those 53 bishops have refused to recognize the Patriarch of Moscow as the leader of their church. And they have, um, so they are no longer commemorating him in church services. Um, it's unclear what's going to happen there. It's, it's unclear if they're going to uh, join this um, uh, relatively new autocephalous uh, Church of Ukraine. It's unclear if it's just going to be temporary. Um, there, there are many uncertainties here, just as there are uncertainties in war. Um, the other thing to note is that um, in the Orthodox world, uh, the individual who is regarded as the first among equals um, is the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, um, modern day Istanbul. And um, he, along with several of the other autocephalous leaders, have fundamentally um, uh, critiqued um, the they've they've critiqued the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian government. They've named Putin as the chief aggressor, and they have also um, rather explicitly called on the Patriarch of Moscow to denounce the war and to do anything he can to to move Putin. Um, to to stop his aggression. Um, Patriarch Kirill, the Patriarch of Moscow, um, however, has simply doubled down. He, he parrots Russian state propaganda for the causes of the war. He refuses to call it a war. Um, he comes up with all kinds of morally dubious reasons for justifying the war and, and so forth. So I wanted to talk about that next, actually. That's a good segue. Uh, could you tell me 
and my listeners a little bit more about the uh, patriarch of, of Moscow and, and also uh, this Russian world uh, teaching and uh, how it's used to maybe justify uh, the invasion of Ukraine on the um, Russian end. Yeah. So um, when so, so you have to understand, uh, R- Russia is uh, obviously historically orthodox. Um, some of the greatest um, modern thinkers in um, orthodox Christianity have have, have been Russian, um, 19th, 20th century, what have you. But Russia, of course, uh, suffered a, a really horrific um, thing with the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik Revolution. There were thousands upon thousands of church leaders who were simply shot, uh, thrown into prison camps and, and so forth. And, and so religion in Russia, active participation in the church was absolutely destroyed by, by the communists. When the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the people who used to run the government, the ex-communists, they were still there. They were still in charge, right? Putin, for example, was the head of the KGB at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And these leaders of the new government were looking for a way to um, reconstruct a national identity that um, differentiated itself from the godlessness of the Soviets, um, continue to differentiate itself from the West, and um, but needed this sort of glue to keep people tied together. And so even though the vast majority of them were atheists, the architects of a new Russian federation went back to its medieval history and to its Christianity as the one thing that differentiated the Russian world, so to speak, from um, from Western Europe, from the Orient, um, from the Soviets and so forth. And so they played rhetorically upon this notion of orthodoxy and um, Christianity as the cultural glue that binds Russians together. And um, so this was in development in the 90s, right? The 1990s. Patriarch Kirill, the current patriarch, who's been patriarch since 2009, developed this, uh, took this idea and developed it uh, more fully. He gave some theological weight to it. uh, And he developed this notion of Mir, which means the Russian world. And so it very um, carefully um, connects soil, blood, language, faith, right? Um, if, 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 you are Russia, if you are genetically Russian, you are genetically Orthodox, right? If you are genetically Russian, you, you have this tie to this particular geographic space. It's in your blood. It's part of who you are. Right. There's no like faith commitment to be orthodox. It's simply if you are a Russian, you are this. But what's also important to know here is that it doesn't just apply to those people who live within the boundaries of the Russian Federation. It extends to all those people who have historically spoken Russian, historically been part of the Russian Empire. Um, and so that includes um, modern day Kiev, or sorry, modern day Ukraine, modern day Belarus, um, et cetera. And one thing to know is when they were reaching back into their history to understand like when 
Russians became Christian, when they became civilized, when they became a thing. They're pointing to the baptism of Prince Vladimir in the 10th century. And what's interesting about that, and so relevant to the current crisis, is that baptism of Prince Vladimir, the first Russian prince to become a Christian, occurred in Kiev. Right. And and um, and so he they see him as the as the sort of er ancestor of Russian civilization. But it was in what is modern day Ukraine. It wasn't in what is modern day Russia. Right. And, and so this Russian world concept extends well beyond in, in their imagination. It extends well beyond um, the current borders of the Russian Federation. Um, and so that's how they see all of these things uh, united. And it's, in, it's important to know that the first person really pushing this concept and this notion was the current patriarch. Now, there is some debate among scholars and political analysts how much this really fuels what Putin is doing, how much it really fuels the, um, the notion of the typical Russian and their uh, willingness support to support Putin and his ambitions. Um, it is absolutely the case that when someone like the Patriarch of Moscow speaks on these issues, he relies on this kind of language. Um, and, uh, and, and Putin has himself at times used it, right, um, to justify what, what, what he's talking about. When we look at this um, Russian world teaching and, and we sort of see coming out of the Russian Orthodox Church right now, this talk of um, the, the evil West and we have to protect ourselves from the evil West because they're uh, pushing their uh, values on us and, and they're hurting tradition. Why is this teaching ultimately, um, I, would it be fair to say, heretical to the faith, uh, as, as some have argued and, and that declaration that you're assigning on has argued? Uh, yeah. So, right. So in the uh, so recently, um, I, I mean, people, theologians, right, Orthodox theologians from a variety of um, ethnic or national backgrounds have been critical of this Russian world teaching for, for a long time. Um, but uh, the um, given the way in which uh, the patriarch has uh, in recent days used the language of this teaching uh, and juxtaposed it to a sort of what he perceives to be a fundamentally corrupt um, uh, West uh, out, outside, like everything outside of the Russian world is evil. It's right. O only Russians are noble. Only Russians are Christian. Um, uh, a, a very large group of international Orthodox theologians came out with a really profound uh, statement critiquing it. Um, I, I believe one time in the document referring to it as heresy. And the, it basically boils down to um, a, a rejection of the notion that Christianity and goodness is only found inside the Russian world, that it is only the Russian world and the proprietors of this sort of novel doctrine that are the ones who speak for Christianity. And so this, um, it, and so it's, it's repudiated on a number of levels, um, most basically because it's a contradiction to the gospel, 
right? The, the gospel is very clear that in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female, right? Um, in other words, all are one, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of race and, and so forth. Uh, yeah, you wanted to ask a question? If I could really quickly, one thing that, that has confused me about all of this, and, and this is coming from someone who I, I'm not Orthodox, I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but you know, to me, it seems as if this Russian world teaching arguably is is about it feels secular in a way in the sense that it it's really about the I guess the kingdom of this world uh, the the sort of temporal world and to me that seems like something that that people really devoted to the faith should maybe avoid uh, you know the the earthly world is is full of temptations and, and we should be searching for the the kingdom of God I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that is another one of the reasons that that the document critiques the Russian world, right? So not only is it critiquing it because it has this flawed notion that one ethnic group is superior to the others, but the other is that um, the Russian world um, vision completely aligns itself with temporal power and, and sees temporal power as the justification for its own existence, right? And, and so the theologians, precisely as you say, the theologians point to um, multiple uh, statements in the Gospels and in the tradition of the Orthodox world that suggest that our kingdom is not of this world, right? This is, this is a temporary space. Um, there's this division be seen between Caesar and, and Christianity, right? And, and so uh, for a number of reasons, um, this group of theologians, which now has over a thousand signatures, including some bishops um, throughout the Orthodox world and a, and a very large number of clergy, um, uh, sort of repudiate the um, Ruskimir doctrine as speaking for Orthodox Christianity. I'm glad you mentioned Caesar there for a moment, because uh, there's that biblical quote, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that, that's actually uh, mentioned in the declaration. Why is that uh, verse so important? Well, it's one of these quintessential passages. So, so in, in many ways that like, like if you're a scholar of the New Testament, you'll know that the text itself is... Um, it, it's somewhat ambiguous, right? Um, and in other words, G Jesus has a habit of speaking almost in riddles sometimes, right? And, and, and so the context of the passage is like the, they're trying to trick Jesus, right? And he says, should you pay taxes to Caesar? Well, at the time Jesus is alive, Palestine has been colonized by the Romans. And so there's this debate, do you collaborate with the Romans? Do you not collaborate with the Romans? And Jesus has already been arrested and they ask him, uh, am I, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, well, pull out a, a pull out a coin, um, whose face is on it. And they say Caesar's and Jesus's response then is we'll give to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. But, you know, there's a way of looking at that theologically as well, isn't everything God's right. <laughs> Didn't God create everything. Right. And so it's really kind of a repudiation of the, it, it, it's sort of a prophetic critique of politics at all, right? Of, of, of the secular world at all, right? Everything is God's. Um, don't, don't worry about the things of the world. Focus on, focus on the spirit, right? So, so, so to speak. Um, but that it, it's a very, you know, there, there is a 
dozen or so passages that whether you're a Christian or not, they're just part of your your vocabulary, like the Good Samaritan, you know, um, the the statement about Caesar, right? And 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 so it's it, but it's this quintessential passage which really kind of prophetically calls into question the aligning of Christians with the state, right? Um, and and it challenges that. This also leads to another important point before we start wrapping up. If we're supposed to sort of turn away from the uh, temporal world and, and focus more on the spiritual, then it isn't a condemnation of what is happening right now also sort of engaging politically. Uh, so I guess what I'm asking is some people would say, well, I'm just going to engage in quietism. Why make a declaration against this Russian world teaching? Yeah, because um, because the idea is there, no matter how hard one might try, there is no escaping the political, right? Um, if, when it all boils down, the fundamental um, expectation of a Christian, the the, the the fundamental challenge of a Christian is to love like God loves, right? Uh, you, if, if we are in the image and likeness of God, we are and always to do at, at the best we can to be like God, and that means to love. So if we're going to love those who suffer, right, if we're going to love those who are oppressed, it isn't enough like, to simply say, oh, I'm just going to pray for peace, right, but not actually do anything about it, then that's kind of just, there's a way of seeing that as a just kind of complicity with the aggressor. If you're not going to actually put yourself um, and speak for those uh, who are oppressed, right, repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus is aligning himself with the foreigner, with the stranger, with the downtrodden, with the poor, with the people who um, suffer the injustices of the world. And so the critique against the quietism uh, line, so to speak, is that, um, yeah, of course, prayer is important, right? It, it, it's, it's an essential element of what it means to be a Christian. But there is no escaping my responsibility for the person next to me, right? Um, and and that is why uh, the document uh, asks um, people to um, to to take a stand, right? To name injustice where they see it, um, and and to um, urge uh, people like Patriarch Kir Kirill and and the Russians of good faith, sorry, the Christians of good faith in Russia. Uh, to do what they can to put an end to the war. Last two things here. Uh, you mentioned there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for you are one in, in for you for all of you are one in Christ. That's Galatians 3.28. I just wanted to note that really quickly, right? Yes, that, 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 that's exactly right. Yeah, and basically what that passage is doing is it's taking the social hierarchies of the age Right when Paul's writing, he's he he he's naming the structural hierarchies of the age, gender, ethnicity, um, wealth, and he's basically saying, if you are part of the Christian community, those external secular hierarchies are fundamentally meaningless because all are equal in God. I hope this doesn't seem like an odd question, but you you were speaking about you know how the faith calls upon its adherents. Uh, 
to care for their neighbors, the, the downtrodden, the hungry, et cetera. I think we're in a moment where a, a lot of people, at least in the U.S., that adhere to what you know, I, I think people like um, Dr. David Bentley Hart have called uh, American Christianity, or, or you know, even the the sort of like evangelical end of Christianity in in the U.S. Uh, they, they look at these sort of ideas about you know they, they look upon you know talk of justice and seeking justice for neighbors and 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 the rest is um, almost like a, a form of you know. Um, far leftism at this point. Um, how do you respond to that sort of development culturally within a lot of the faith-based community? Yeah. So, so you're right that there are a lot of people in the United States that do this, right? Um, politicians particularly. And my response to that is it's because these people are just fundamentally historically ignorant. They don't know anything about these. They, 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 they like genuinely don't know anything about the history of Christianity. Right. Um, what what people today might call sort of the teachings on social justice um, that are advocated by some on the left, but some on the right as well. These these concepts like like put into structural political spaces were fourth century developments um, and led by Christian theologians. And, and the fact that um, the fact that current American politicians don't know anything about this just shows their ignorance should we be concerned that that kind of ignorance is spreading elsewhere now with uh this this russian world <laughs> we should be we should be very concerned right with the um with the willful ignorance and the inability uh and just the fundamental lack of critical thinking um across the population yeah absolutely Right. This is this is how um, political nonsense spreads, simply because people are uninformed and lack the skills to adjudicate what is uh, valuable information versus what is, you know, political rhetoric. And the last question I want to ask, I promise to let you go after this, and I appreciate the time you've given me. What does this mean for the Orthodox faith? And Orthodox Christians going forward is—is is this going to cause a, a major schism? That's a great question, um, and it's one that I don't think we know the answer to. Um, it's certainly possible that this could happen, um, but uh, ho hopefully it won't. And it, it remains to be seen. Um, how long is this war going to go on? Um, how? How? Um, much is Patriarch Kirill, for how long will Patriarch Kirill simply parrot Putin rhetoric? And how will the leaders of the other autocephalous churches respond to what Kirill is, is doing? Um, I think it remains to be seen. It is a risk, um, but it remains to be seen. It, do, you, do you see it as a, I, I guess, how would you assess that risk? How, how big is it? Um, I'm sorry if we're, we're speculating too much yeah, right now. I know, yeah, I know I, this is... Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to, you know, I, I'm a historian by training. No one ever knows, like, there are these moments in history that turn out to be a really big deal, but nobody knows it at the time, right? So it's kind of impossible to know, is, it, is, this, um, is this one of those big moments, or is this simply a blip that will self-correct? Um, and I, I just don't know the answer to that.
Well, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, if there's any one thing that you want listeners to get out of the conversation we've just had, uh, what would that be? And, and how can my listeners uh, learn more about these topics? Um, the one thing I would say is don't allow um, Patriarch Kirill or Vladimir Putin to speak for orthodoxy, even in Russia. Um, uh, I, I was going to say really quickly, I, I think that is a problem because I know people who are not orthodox, yeah. who I think have this impression that the patriarch of Moscow does speak for yeah. the entire orthodox church. And I don't think that's true. And I think that should be repudiated. Well, it, it certainly he doesn't speak for the church globally, but he doesn't. Even, I mean, institutionally, he's the head of the church, but he does not reflect the views of the vast majority of Russians who live in Russia. I, I, I simply I know this for a fact. Right. And um, and because he's in this position of power, um, it can seem like he does. But you really do need to know that the vast majority of Russians who are aware of what's going on, the vast majority of them are horrified by what's going on and they're opposed to it. Um, and, uh, and and the same is true for Russian Orthodox who see what um, Kirill is doing or uh, Metropolitan Hilarion Alfayev, who's kind of his spokesperson, they see what these people are doing and they're horrified by it. Uh, it doesn't reflect them at all. Um, and I think that that is something um, uh, important to know. And also, uh, how, how can my listeners keep up with your work and, and also learn more about these topics? Yeah, well, we so at um, the Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham, we have this online editorial forum called Public Orthodoxy, um, publicorthodoxy.org. And um, it's simply, it's the largest online editorial forum of scholarly sort of analysis of what's going on in the Orthodox world. Um, there, there's really nothing else like it in English. And so I'd um, suggest that they register and, uh, and, and follow it there. I mean, it, it's all Ukraine all the time on, on that site now. And um, so you just read back the past few weeks and you'll find some really excellent analysis from scholars all over the world. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed all of the conversations with our fascinating guests. And as always, if you can, please consider supporting me on patreon.com slash parallax views again that's patreon.com slash parallax views it is you the listener that helps to keep this show going so if you appreciate my work head on over to my patreon page there's everything from a one dollar tier to a 100 dollar tier with a 5 10 and 15 dollar tier in between your financial support is very 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 much appreciated. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, other will be doing like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.